what's up y'all exactly living corporate and look special announcement i rarely ever make announcements uh on you know other folks podcasts but i have something really special to talk to y'all about and it can't wait it can't wait okay so if y'all heard my story at any point in time y'all know as a first generation corporate professional person i didn't graduate from college really understanding how to navigate these spaces these white spaces which is why living corporate is a thing it's because we're trying to create content that like centers and affirms marginalized people and gives them a space where they can be heard and appreciated, but also gives them the insight that they may not have because they're probably one of the onlys in whatever space they operate in, right? Whatever nine to five job they have, they're probably one of the few there. Well, we've been really making content and creating things for folks when they get to corporate America, when they get to the job, whatever that job may be. Corporate America just means like nine to five, right? We've yet to create anything that's really specific for Folks who are about to get into the job, who are about to enter the workforce. I'm really excited to make an announcement right here. We got something called the Access Point. The Access Point is a weekly live webinar show where we're going to invite special guests to talk to black and brown college students who are getting ready to enter the workforce and give them the real talk that they don't even know that they need. But y'all know the stuff that y'all wish y'all would have had. Before y'all got to the workforce, we're trying to have those conversations right now, and they're going to be targeted and focused for black and brown college students and recent alumni. Okay, so in the show notes, there's going to be a link, a sign up form. Click the link. If you are a young person, right, you just graduated from college or you're about to graduate from college, I want you to click that link. I want you to check it. I want you all to register. Our first show is on September the 15th. That's a Tuesday at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Now it's live, so you can participate live or you can just check out the website and all the content will be recorded. You can check out the recorded. But I mean, don't you want to interact live? You know what I'm saying? We have a great, 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 great host. We got Tristan Layfield from Tristan's Tips. We got Tiffany Tate, a career coach. We got Brandon Gordon, uh, a.k.a. BG. Great guy. And we have the Mike Yates. Mike Yates, a TEDx speaker, educator, mentor, public speaker. I'm telling you, great program. It's called The Access Point, The Access Point, The Access Point. First episode on September the 15th at 7 p.m. Central live. You can catch the recording on living-corporate.com or livingcorporate.tv. All right, y'all. Peace. Sharon, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to talk to you today because you have a job that most people don't even know exists. So just, yeah, tell us about what it is, um, your role in the insurance industry. Um, Well, Amy, my role in the insurance industry, I think is somewhat unique um, in that I um, spent the past decade or so as an insurance regulator. Uh, And so as an insurance regulator, I was responsible for ensuring that insurance companies maintain the promise that they make to policyholders. And I did that um, in two different roles that um, I can share a little bit more about. But um, just again, in its most basic form, uh, as a regulator, I was responsible for ensuring that insurance companies maintain their promise to policyholders. And that means a couple of different things, right? Because it means on the one hand, that they're not denying claims that they should be paying. Absolutely. But on the other hand, it also means that you have a, a hand in making thing, making sure that these companies are holding enough money back in reserve so that they're going to be around long enough yes. to pay the claims. So yes. can you talk a little bit about what that means? 
Yes. So um, during my time in state government um, with in the state of Florida, it's the Department of Financial Services and other parts of the country. It's different offices of insurance regulation. Um, so I held two roles. Both of them were um, somewhat um, unique, but played a really important role in um, ensuring, again, that that promise was kept. So I spent about six years as the director of the Division of Rehabilitation and Liquidation, which is the division within state government that takes over insurance companies that become financially insolvent. So when our insurance commissioner um, determines that uh, an insurance company doesn't have the financial wherewithal to pay the claims as they become due, um, that referral was then made to my division. And I led a team of um, about 120 people that would oversee the takeover of an insurance carrier. Um, we would run off the claims or um, and transition policyholders to um, more vibrant um, financially solvent insurance companies. And then we would also sue um, to recover assets so that those claims could be paid. That was um, a pretty fascinating role. Um, really exciting at times, but also um, somewhat disheartening because there are um, times when insurance companies aren't able to um, make good on their promise. And so policyholders are sometimes left um, holding the bag with unpaid claims um, and unfulfilled promises. And so um, it was a very delicate balance to be able to um, take care of the policyholder while at the same time um, essentially shut down uh, an active insurance company. And so for people not in the industry, not in the insurance industry, I think it's important to understand, you know, that the the insurance companies make a promise to pay at some point in the future, but they take your premiums up front, right? Yeah. So, so you're paying, you're paying for that promise and it's up to regulators like yourself to make sure that, you know, if you have a long tail policy, like, um, I think, you know, probably the most common example is, you know, asbestos claims, right? That, yes. Right. We have people going into buildings, you know, tearing down buildings and we have policies around, you know, their health and safety working for us. And 20 years from now, those employees um, develop lung cancer because they were working with asbestos. Those employees then go to the insurer to collect yes. um, for medical bills, for pain and suffering. And it's not just that the employer needs to be there to help handle that but their insurance company is really the backstop for those lawsuits. So if they've invested with an insurance company that's not around 20 years down the road, these folks, these workers then have, are gonna struggle to pay their hospital bills. They're that's gonna struggle to be compensated for the damage that their employers caused them. Yes. Is that a good yes. summary? That's a great summary. Um, and another example that we have run into um, is in long-term care. Um, insurance, where, um, again, as you mentioned, policyholders are paying premiums for years. Um, and even in a basic, you know, life context, you're paying policy um, premiums for years in the hope that when there's a trigger, when something happens um, in life, the life context, if you pass away or in a long-term care uh, situation if you have, um, you know, something, uh, a health episode that 
um, would trigger you using your long-term care insurance, the hope is that that carrier is going to be there and will make good on that. It's also a hope that over time, your premiums um, will not um, significantly swing, meaning that you may be paying $20 a month and you're told you'll be paying $20 a month for you know the next 20 years, but then 10 years in, you find out, oh, the insurance company needs more money. Now you have to pay $120. And so um, in my other role as a regulator, um, I served as the state insurance consumer advocate. Um, and Florida has a, a pretty unique um, um, position in that, and other states don't have this, but the state insurance consumer advocate represents um, the insurance buying public in rate cases and in rate hearings. Um, so if a company is looking to increase their rates or introduce new products into the marketplace, I was responsible for weighing in on whether or not that was a good product or a good rate for consumers. And so again, that also was a really interesting perspective um, given the landscape um, of the industry, which uh, you and I know, Amy, is really vast and really complex. Um, and so I was grateful to be able to have, um, be able to see the industry from both um, contexts. And I think that's an interesting perspective too, because the balancing act there for people who are unfamiliar with this is you want the insurers to get enough of a rate, right? Enough premium yes. to remain solvent, to pay all of their claims, to do all of the work that they need to do, right? So they have to have enough money coming in, but on the same, you know, but on the flip of that coin, you don't want them to have rates that are so high that they're gouging their policyholders. Absolutely. Rates cannot be excessive um, and they have to be justified and they can't be um, discriminatory. And so those terms to a layperson seem pretty simple, excessive, you know, fair, um, non-discriminatory, but all of those terms that make up um, how a regulator um, evaluates the rate is, is in, in reality, is really complicated. And um Again, there are a lot of people that, um, a lot of people in terms of the team that really um, participate in that analysis. So you have an actuary, you have lawyers, you have analysts, um, and there are so many factors that go into whether or not the rate it can be justified. Um, and so, again, like you said, you want to make sure that the rate is adequate so that insurance companies have enough money to pay the claims, but you want to make sure that policyholders aren't being treated unfairly, um, being charged too much, or uh, in the context of um, uh, issues about discriminatory rates, you, don't, you want to make sure that insurance companies aren't taking certain risk factors and kind of uh, extrapolating that risk factor across a broad um, swath of people. So when you look at um, zip code, um, zip coding, you look at, um, you know, race, ethnicity, geography, age, you want to make sure, um, again, that that large groups of policyholders aren't being treated unfairly based upon certain, certain rating factors. Right. Because insurance is all about discrimination right in the in the the purest sense of the word right higher yeah. risk 
individuals, companies should pay higher premiums because they're more likely to have a claim or to cause a claim. And, but then on, uh, you know, again, there's this, this balancing act because in the United States, we know that, you know, you can pretty much use zip code as a uh, proxy for race. Mm -hmm. And so when we say, well, you know, when the insurer says, well, where, you know, where's the zip code where your car is parked at night, right? Right. You have to make Mm -hmm. sure that that's really relevant to the risk that they're in the property risk of the car and not some, um, we're charging black customers more. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and similar conversations take place up around um, data and um, insurance companies use of, um, you know, what we call big data and how they um, capture data and use data for policyholders. So again, all of this is just really, to me, very fascinating um, and very impactful. So um, again, as you look at the the broadness, the broadness of the industry, um, the role of a regulator is very important and is sometimes often missed um, when we talk about insurance professionals. Absolutely. And so that leads me to my next question, which is, how did you get into this role? Because I'm guessing this wasn't something that you thought about, you know, when you were in high school or college and said, oh, someday I'm going to regulate insurance in Florida, which might be the most complicated job in the world, by the way, <laughs> because Florida has the most regulations of Absolutely. any state. Absolutely. So did, and the most risk. Yeah. And so, how did you yes. find yourself in in that role? Um, it, it was an interesting path. And I think like most of my fellow insurance professionals that I've that I have relationships with and have talked with, it wasn't a direct path. It wasn't um, something that I dreamed about. Um, so I am uh, a lawyer by trade and, and training. And so I was um, practicing law um, with a firm and my practice was primarily, um, it, it started as primarily a real estate transactional practice during the height of the real estate market. So I was doing uh, real estate closings and litigation. uh, And my practice shifted um, away from uh, real estate transactional practice to more of a bankruptcy practice um, because a lot of uh, developers, contractors, banks were, um, and you know, people just in general were being hit hard by, um, you know, the, when the bubble burst. So my practice in law shifted to bankruptcy and an opportunity became available in state government to um, become a part of the division I mentioned, the division of rehab and liquidation, which really is akin to bankruptcy. Essentially, it is placing an insurance company into um, quote unquote bankruptcy. Um, and because of how companies are regulated, they're regulated at, a, at the state level versus the federal level. And so the state oversees that, um, the takedown and the unwinding of an insurance company. So my bankruptcy background and my legal background, I think was very um, important in me landing this new role. And also, you know, frankly, it was good for me in terms of work-life balance, because at that time, um, I had a, a new child. Um, my daughter is 12 now. And it was just, uh, it was a good fit to move from the uh, pressure cooker environment of uh, being in litigation to um, a more 
um, what I consider a more balanced um, environment for my family. So. I think that's such a great story. And, you know, like you said, so many people end up in the insurance industry just by happenstance. Um, what surprised you about the industry or about the role that you were in that you did not expect coming into it? Um, I really didn't expect to fall in love with insurance like I have. <laughs> um, I, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's kind of like, um, I just didn't know enough about it. And what I knew about it just didn't seem or sound, as we say, it, you know, it didn't sound sexy. Um, it didn't sound like something that I would want to be involved in forever. Um, so I was really surprised by that. Um, and once I got involved, and, and one of the reasons why I didn't think I would um, enjoy it as much is I really didn't understand the fact that um, insurance as an industry is a um, people-oriented industry, that it touches people. Um, and so one of the things outside of you know my, my practice of law is that I'm really um, passionate about being impactful, really passionate about people. Um, and so I always thought that I could only impact people in the social kind of policy context. So education, criminal justice, you know, I had no idea that this industry was out here that is regulated business, but also um, impactful for towards people. So that surprised me. And once I really realized uh, and found my niche, um, it's been, you know, me and the industry ever since. And I'm really committed to um, making it the best possible industry it can be, not just for policyholders, but for insurance professionals as well. And you raised such an awesome point because so many people have this call, right? They want to follow their heart and do something good for the, you know, good for their communities, good for the world. And they think in their minds, and I know I felt like this too, that to do something good for the world, you have to live on, you know, a, a very paltry salary. You have to have very right. little means, right? Yes. You, you know, I know so many people that go into social work because that's where their heart is and there's nothing at all wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But by the time you've got a master's degree and now you're making just, just above minimum wage, right. and you're paying off student loan debt, like that's a big financial hit. Yes. Yes. And I think it's so important for people to realize you can do a lot of good in the insurance industry, but also have a middle-class income. Absolutely. Sustainable for your entire career. Absolutely. And I'll give you an example. And this really kind of, um, I think illustrates, um, as you mentioned earlier, the role um, that Florida plays in insurance. Um, Florida is a high risk state because of the hurricane, our prevalence for uh, catastrophic hurricanes. And so um, a couple years ago in my role as insurance consumer advocate, I um, had the opportunity, unfortunately, to be involved in um, the post-hurricane um, climate that we were in as a state. And so one day I got a call from um, a woman who said that um, her parents who were in their 90s were in their home when one of the hurricanes came through and a tree fell on their house. Um, the great thing was they were not harmed, but the insurance company um, did not want to total loss the, the home. Although the, 
the 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 house had actually moved and you know this can get real technical and geeky but the point is that um you know i was able to weigh in and in my role as insurance consumer advocate and assist them and kind of mediate between them and the insurance company educate the policyholder on um you know things in their policy but at the same time kind of um weigh in with the carrier that you know these folks are in their 90s these are factors that aren't in the policy um <laughs> they're in their 90s um and you know they're they're good people and it would be a great thing to do and so i was able to help and so that's an example of um because of my knowledge of insurance my knowledge of insurance policies my relationships in the industry um how something what i thought was technical and boring turned turned into um an opportunity to help and to serve and i think that's really important absolutely and so i'm guessing correct me if I'm wrong, that there aren't, uh, there's not a critical mass of black insurance regulators in the state of Florida. No, no, there's not a critical <laughs> mass of black insurance regulators in Florida or in the country. Okay. So, so my assumption is correct. So yes, yes. <laughs> with that being said, where do you go for community? How do you, um, how do you handle or balance or counteract the feeling of being the only in your work? That's a that's a great question. Um, and so for me, that community, I found that community within um, NIA, the National African American Insurance Association. Uh, and my um, entry point into the organization started when I became insurance consumer advocate for the state of Florida. I knew that a part of my role was the outreach, and so I wanted, I immediately wanted to connect with. Um, folks that looked like me that had um, an understanding of insurance to kind of help me get my message out um, to the the rest of the state. And so I did a Google search and I looked for African American Insurance Professionals Florida, uh, and it took me to the national um, website, NIA. Went there, scrolled through, and found that NIA did not have a chapter in Florida, um, which was... Um, somewhat surprising because of the role, as we've already said, the role that Florida plays in the insurance landscape um, across the country. Make a long story short, um, I started emailing people, anyone who had like an email address on the website um, to find out if this was some oversight or if there's anything that I could do. And um, about two years later, we chartered a chapter in Florida. Um, a statewide fantastic and so we we created the community um so the greater community was there i went to the national conference got connected with um some great people across the country that are equally committed to the industry and diversity and inclusion and we started um kind of our road show in the state of florida and we now have a chapter um with over 50 members so that's um that's where I go. And um, sometimes you have to create a community where one doesn't exist. Excellent, excellent point. And, you know, I think that it's, once you've created that space, right, once you've blazed that trail, it becomes so much easier for other people to walk that path and yeah. find you. And um, so what are the membership requirements for joining NIA at a chapter or a national level so that people understand? 
Um, the, the requirements are pretty broad. Um, one, the hope is that you would be involved in the insurance industry. You would be an insurance professional, but um, that's not a hard and fast requirement. There, we have student members who aspire to be in the insurance industry. Um, you could also be just an associate um, of um, the industry. So if you have an interest in insurance, um, the national organization chapters are really open. Um, it's also uh, a misnomer by the name that you have to be African-American. And we have um, members that are um, all races um, and support the mission of the organization, which is to diversify the insurance industry. So if you have an interest in insurance and you have a commitment to diversity and inclusion, then um, NIA membership is open and um, we welcome you with open arms. And you know what's so funny? I interviewed uh, yesterday Omari Ahrens, yes. uh -huh. who is the, the inaugural Boston. president of the Boston chapter. Yes. And he and I worked together at Liberty Mutual for a while. And as I'm talking to him, I'm wondering to myself, why am I not a member of NIA? Yeah. That makes so much sense. Exactly. And so 24 hours have been marinating on this. Like, why did I, why am I not? And so yes. that's my next, my next step Good. after this call is Good. to go apply to be a member of NIA because of course I am an insurance professional who is committed to this work. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm embarrassed that it's taken me this long to figure out, you know, after interviewing like six people who are on like national leadership roles with yeah. NIA that I didn't, it didn't occur to me to go and, and sign up. So. Well, we, we would love to have now. you. <laughs> Good. Thank you. <laughs> now you're stuck with me. Sure. <laughs> That's great. So what would you tell somebody, like if somebody's thinking about, Ooh, this sounds really interesting. I like, I like super complicated work mm -hmm. and I want to help people and I've got a huge brain and I can process all of this information. Mm -hmm. What would you tell them about how to get started? Um, I it, it depends on where they are in the process. I would definitely say if you're already if you're an existing college student and you're not in a major that you think um, will guide you into insurance, that you're probably wrong. In that um, you can enter into the insurance industry from any major, any any. It really any major. So if you're um, on the business side or communications with marketing and PR, if you're in math and you want to be an actuary, um, or if you're just liberal arts and you're not sure, um, the skills that are needed in insurance um, are wide. So it, your ability to communicate um, written and verbally is important. Your ability to build relationships. So um, <laughs> It, it just really doesn't matter. And so I think that um, just start seeking out um, mentors and opportunities to engage with insurance professionals. And, and I think this you would be surprised at the doors that will open for you. I have found the industry to be so welcoming of people and at the personal level, right? If you reach out to somebody and say, hey, I wanna learn about your job, people are more than happy to share. Um, but also, you know, the industry as a whole is there is such a need for talent because Absolutely. the, the stereotypical, um, you know, insurance persona of yeah. old white dude 
yeah. is not too far off in terms of, of where the, the concentration of people is. And so we're looking at an industry that half of the workforce is poised to retire. Yes. And, um, you know, there, there's just a lot of shoes to fill. And without broadening that search yes. into different communities, different schools, different talent profiles, you know, different demographics, different educational backgrounds, you name it. Yes. Right? It's an industry that, you know, that I fear will struggle to remain um, relevant and solvent. And we know from talking to you and talking to others that if the insurance industry isn't there, um, you know, it's going to be harder to buy homes, to buy cars, yes. to start businesses. I mean, we really need to keep this industry going for mm-hmm. the good of our economy and for the good of society. So absolutely thank you so much for the outreach that you're doing. I know that Naya is doing a lot of work um, to reach out to HBCUs yes. and students there. I know that you're doing a lot of work in your community to engage and retain the talent that we've already got in the industry. And so Sharon James, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. For enlightening our listeners and for sharing your journey. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for the invitation. I appreciate you. Absolutely. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.